Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. We made it. Another midweek service. Five services left to go. You might have heard something about that. But Stu's not worried. He's not bothered. Are you, Stu? He's good. Go dogs. Go dogs. Hey, if you're new to CCF, uh, really glad you're here. Really glad you stumbled in. Um, hey. And uh, I won't call you out too individually, but hey. Um, and yes, I am Reed. I'm one of the staff people. Been here for a little while. If you are new, you are stumbling into a series on the Sermon on the Mount. You're here. That's what we're doing. Um, and also a thing about me is I, I can't ever decide on one title for my sermon. So here are a few for tonight. We're into chapter seven, which is, man, it's almost over. Uh, here it is, three dots, or the curiosity antidote, or as if God had a need to avenge himself, or judge not unless they spell it judgment. Here's a fun thing, though. Did you know, ironically, judgment spelled that way is a non-legal term? Ask Brian A. Garner, genius, Derek. You know what he says, right? That in Great Britain... In a non-legal sense, they do. It is acceptable to spell it with the E. However, if you're speaking in a legal sense, you should never add the E. But if you're non-legal, isn't that ironic? Judgment, non-legal, with an E? That's so funny. Um, There we go. Hey, uh, would you stand up? I'm going to read this passage, and it's a few verses long. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven good give things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few." Please sit down. I really used to think that I knew everything. Now, I knew way too much to ever be caught dead saying that out loud. In fact, I knew enough to know that it's always a good idea to lead with, now I don't know everything, but really, I thought I did especially when it came to my dad. 
to be perfectly fair and honest, and as I have talked about down here at times before in the past, growing up, my family life wasn't great. It wasn't full of horrors like some of the stories that I have been told, but it was a pretty steady drip of aggression, absence, belittling. And what grew in me in those years and in the years following my escape to college would probably best be called seething presumption. Seething because my anger was intense, but mostly unexpressed. Presumption because my anger fueled this unflinching certainty that I knew everything there was to know about my dad, whom I held responsible for my affliction. I knew what he was, and I knew why he was the way he was. He was mean and controlling and power-mongering uh, because he was a bad person. The seething and the presuming, uh, if I can be honest, it made for a pretty tasty and vicious cycle. Me being anger fed that I knew everything, and me knowing everything fed that I was really angry. I was 28 years old when my parents divorced, and the leash that I used, the leash that I used for taking my seething presumption out on walks, it snapped. I told my dad in a letter, I said, until you are ready to fully acknowledge and repent for your actions, there is no reason for us to talk. When would the acknowledgement and the repentance be full? When would they be enough? How would we know? when I was satisfied. He said, of course, he was sorry for everything. I said, that's not good enough. Slammed my gavel down, and the silence just echoed for quite a long time. We didn't communicate at all for a year. Through my accountability group and my mom, God eventually pried the gavel out of my hands long enough for us to speak again, and I told Dad that we could talk. But I told him that he needed to know that how deep our relationship could go would be just naturally limited by how deeply he was willing to engage in the work of humility and confession. Had myself a little intervention with him. Was I right? I don't know. I really don't. Humility and confession were, of course, necessary and would have been good. But was that the only thing limiting how deep our relationship could go? I picked up my gavel. I judged it was all on him. We began to communicate again. But, you know, it was just always uh, stilted. And it was always uncomfortable, and it was always tinged with resentment from me. I wasn't banging the gavel anymore. I was just kind of lightly and constantly just like tapping it on the block. You know what I'm saying? I'm not sorry. Frederick Buechner said, we are all of us judged every day. We are judged by the face that looks back at us from the bathroom mirror. We are judged by the faces of the people we love and by the faces and lives of our children and by our dreams. 
We are judged by the faces of the people we do not love. Each day finds us at the junction of many roads, and we are judged as much by the roads we have not taken as by the roads we have. He's right. We are revealed and we are evaluated by the things that we have done and the things that we have left undone. And I think in our darker places, we aren't just revealed by them, but we feel condemned by them as well. The words that we say about our friends or former friends, the numbers and letters on our transcripts. When we're old, we're judged by the few things that we have cemented ourselves into. And when we're young, we're judged by the too much that we're trying to accomplish. We're judged by the expectations we perceive from others, as well as the ones that we force on ourselves. And I think what Fred means is that we have enough in life judging us without anyone having to add their voice to it. So do I really need to add my voice to judging anyone else? But we do. We do. It seems to me that uh, this is, I was thinking about this uh, since Marty's talk the other Sunday, uh, that we live in a time and in a place, we live in a culture where, where judgment is somehow both the chief sin and the cardinal virtue. The chief sin because of the indignation, should you criticize me or question my truth or my experience and the cardinal virtue because of the fervor to silence and to cast out the ones, those guys over there who do not uphold the truth. Stance making, side taking as Marty talked about and like conservative, liberal, right, left, it doesn't matter. For a culture that holds tolerance in high esteem, we do a lot of excommunicating. All of us with our tiny gavels. Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. Which seems to mean that I should avoid judging you, not because you don't deserve to be judged, but because I do the same as you. It's not that you couldn't be judged, it's that I could be as well. So, small aside, thank God for mercy. Mercy is the great equalizer. It puts us all on the same ground. That's what mercy does. And it's a truth that we have apparently drowned out with all of our gavel banging. The ringing in our ears is like so loud that we can't hear this word of mercy. So, judge not that you be not judged. Is anybody else thinking like, well, what about judging a fruit, a tree by fruit, a fruit by its tree, a tree by its fruit? Anybody heard that one before? What about judging a tree by its fruit? Um, ask me at sermon discussion about that one. But if what you mean is that once you have seen someone's actions, then you have what you need to know to both understand and judge them, I see your fruit. I judge you now. Let me ask you this question. If all someone has, is a video of you and what you've done, do they now know everything they need to know to rightly evaluate you? Or do you know about yourself that there's more to you deep down than simply what you do? And that the two don't always work in concert? Do you ever not do what you know you ought to do? Do you ever do what you do not want to do. 
If someone judges you simply by what you do with no consideration for what you mean or what you want or what you intend, do they judge you rightly by your fruit? Do they know you? So, what does Jesus mean? Judge not that you be not judged. He means condemn not that you be not condemned. Presume not to know everything about someone else that they not presume to know everything about you. Believe not the worst about your fellow humans that they not believe the worst about you. Because that's what our judgment is, like our brand of judgment. That's what it's always kind of doing, isn't it? It doesn't give the benefit of the doubt because there is no doubt. It doesn't just condemn. It condemns because it knows. I know. Here's what judgment does. Judgment looks at these uh, three dots, and it draws three straight lines. And it knows that what it's looking at is a triangle. What it doesn't do is ask, are there more points to consider? It doesn't care about the news that you just got. It doesn't care about the meeting that you just had with your advisor. It doesn't care about the day that you had at work. It doesn't care about your family history. It doesn't care about the breakup you just had or that you had to work through last semester. It doesn't care about any of that. But what if these three points are not just three, but four, or five, or six, or seven. Like, what if the triangle is actually like a cube? Sorry, bad cube. If I don't ask if there are more points, then I don't see what's really there, and I misjudge. The judgment that Jesus is talking about, judge not, that judgment is not curious. It sees what it can see, and it knows what's what. And it doesn't ask any questions. And it doesn't consider that there might be angles and points and dimensions that it can't see. In 2019, when I was 35, I was on a road trip with my mom. And we were talking about my dad and his mistakes and failures, when she said something that shocked me. She said, Reed, I think your dad was just doing the best he could. Really? Yes, she told me. And she proceeded to tell me things about my dad and his family growing up, things that happened in the 1950s, 30 years before I was ever born, things that would be impossible to know these things way out here if I am not asking questions. 
It turned out that my dad had points and angles and dimensions that I had no way of seeing. And it turned out that his lack of humility and confession weren't the only things limiting how deep our relationship could go. There were all kinds of things that happened to him that played a role. And crucially, even beyond and outside of him, my own refusal to wonder if there were more points in the connect the dots was limited, was limiting the depth that we could get to. Do you do that with anybody? Do you see those three points and you know it all? Judgment makes us go around seeing everybody as three-pointed dot to dots. But what kind of a picture would we get if there were a dozen points, or a hundred points, or a thousand points? What kind of shape can that make? How many points do you think there are in you? So is it any real surprise to us, then, that Jesus, what Jesus prescribes in the place of judgment is this, ask. Ask. This is what you should do regarding the one that you would rather judge. Ask. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Every one of you who does this will get what they came for, I promise. And we don't hear it right when we're doing the kid thing and it's like, if I just ask for a million dollars, God will give me a lottery ticket. That's not what this is talking about. This is not just about God supplying your daily needs. We're, talk we're having a conversation about judging other people. Why would God just drop that right in there? Jesus, sorry. He's God. We're good. So, you ask for good? The question is, do you want to ask that regarding the person that you would rather judge? Do you have the courage to even ask that question? When it comes to then asking, in the context of judgment, what are we asking for? What are we seeking? What door are we knocking about this? Uh, this is the thought that I had. What about this? What if the door that we're knocking at is the heart, the soul of this person that we would rather judge? Trying to see what's in there. What if what we're asking simply and with goodwill is what can I see in this person that might help me have something for them other than condemnation? Jesus says this is a request that God will answer. He'll always answer it. If we are asking for a reason to have compassion, God will not give us a reason to condemn. How much more will he give good things? And what do we find when we seek? When we seek to explore the depth of this person that we would rather judge, what does God show us? I think we find that what's true about them is also what I know to be true about me that we are complicated, dynamic interplays of cause and effect, experience and behavior, history and present. I find that my father and I have a lot in common. 
that we were both created good, and I would even say innocent in the image of God, and that this goodness and this innocence was broken or stolen by someone in a way that was beyond our control, and that we have now come to live out of this brokenness in a way and in many ways that we do things that we do not want to do and we do not do the things that we know we ought to do. I have yelled at my boys. I have belittled my boys. I'm not just like saying in a moment of like unbridled anger, like I have belittled them. I have ignored chances to build them up and I have ignored chances to be close with them. I have done all of that. So whatever you read, wish others to do to you, do also to them. What do I hope they will do for me? <laughs> I hope that someday they will first ask and seek and knock at the door of me and my past before they pass judgment on me. And I hope that they choose, when given the chance, to tell a better story about me than what they might otherwise just assume is the case. I hope that when they're given the choice between presuming and diving deeper, that they will do the second. So I'm trying to do this with my own dad for the last few years. And I know that what has happened in me since I have chosen to do that with him is that my own anger and bitterness, they haven't just like been suppressed or kept under control, but they have been miraculously transformed, transfigured, I would say, into genuine compassion. I now have something like real compassion, and it's not just me trying not to judge. And when compassion has begun to take root in us, something uh, happens. Something happens not just to what we ask about the ones that we'd like to judge, but to what we ask for them. Some of us have been taught that we shouldn't judge ourselves, we know that, that instead, ask God to take care of it. Let God be the judge. And honestly, much of what that seems to me to be is just the mantra of somebody who has already decided in their own heart just exactly how that judgment should and will go. You know what I'm saying? Like, because I'm a good Christian person, I will politely decline to pass judgment. And instead, I will let God be the judge, leaving it to God, when really I'm just making God a surrogate for my own spite and vengeance. It's like, I, I don't judge you. I don't have to judge you because I know that God will, and when he does, right? We're like Jonah, sitting on the hill outside of Nineveh, foaming at the mouth for just waiting to see God bring the heat. And then what God brings is mercy. It's not that God doesn't judge. It's just that I, and I'm going to go ahead and speak for all of us here and say all of us, we need to accept that we are too ignorant and hard-hearted to have any idea what judgment should actually look like, what it should be like. We just don't know. This is why God doesn't ask us to partner with him in judging. This is why Jesus is telling you very directly, judge not. Don't need your help with that one. So what if, instead of leaving the judgment to God, instead of 
asking God to judge someone, what if we ask him to bless them? After all, this is the business that God has been in since the very first page of the Bible. Going around, blessing everything, calling it good. Because while, while judgment is not something that God asks us to partner in, I think blessing is. Actually, I know that blessing is. This is what God, he's like, here, help me with this part. Pray for those who persecute you, Jesus said. Or Paul wrote in Romans, just to be really clear, he's like, bless those who persecute you. And in case that was confusing, bless and do not curse. That's what God is asking you to partner with him in doing. Bless and do not curse. So, what would happen if we decided, whatever the person is that we are like passing judgment on, what would that look like if it was like, okay, I'm going to pass blessing on them instead? One of the best books that I've read in the last little while, it's not by Frederick Buechner. It is by Barbara Brown Taylor, BBT, An Altar in the World, um, and a chapter that has become rooted deep in me that uh, it just like it's, it's changed, it's shifted a lot for me, is a chapter called The Practice of Pronouncing Blessings. It's a book about spiritual disciplines, but not like in the lame, boring way that you would expect. The Practice of Pronouncing Blessings. Uh, and so I'm just going to read a little bit of what she wrote, because I can't do it any better. So she says this. She says, surely it makes more sense to withhold a blessing until something has become the best it can be. Surely there are some things that are so repulsive, worthless, or destructive that blessing them would be like aiding the opposition. The only way to find out, she says, is to try it. Practice blessing something simply because it exists alongside you and find out what your mind does with that exercise. In Jewish tradition, Every blessing prayer begins by blessing God. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, by whose word all things come into being. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has made the works of creation. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who feeds all living things. And she goes on, such prayers are addressed to the God whose rain falls on the just and the unjust, whose sun rises on the evil and the good. In this complicated world, baby rattlesnakes get breakfast as well as baby girls and boys. Little Hitlers grow up in the same generation with little Bonhoeffers and little Schindlers. Blessing prayers do not overlook such complexity or the pain and suffering that can accompany it. They simply decline to adjudicate it. They don't judge. Rightly or not, they decide that given a choice between a blessing and a curse, a blessing will do more to improve air quality. A blessing will have more power to transform the blessee, although transformation is not required. There is no impressive logic behind this reasoning, she admits. The only logic is that all life comes from God, and that for that reason alone we may call it blessed, leaving the rest to God. Pronouncing a blessing puts you as close to God as you can get. To learn to look with compassion on everything that is, 
to see past the terrifying demons outside to the bawling hearts within, to make the first move toward the other, however many times it takes to get close, to open your arms to what is instead of waiting until it is what it should be, to surrender the justice of your own cause for mercy, to surrender the priority of your own safety for love, this is to land at God's breast. To pronounce a blessing on something is to see it from the divine perspective. To pronounce a blessing is to participate in God's own initiative. To pronounce a blessing is to share God's own audacity. I recognize the difficulty behind this, this idea of just pronouncing blessings even on the ones that you think are the vilest and the worst, and not requiring a transformation because of it, and not waiting for them to be worthy of it before you do it, to judge not, but to ask, to seek, to knock, even for them, and that maybe some of you have a bunch of theology about God's wrath and justice that's getting in the way. And if that's you, let's have a conversation about it. I would love to talk to you about that. But for now, I can only point again and again to the God who is the judge of the whole universe. That when he was on a cross, he said this about the ones torturing him and hanging him up there, even as they were doing it. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They don't. They really don't know. And we don't either. But he does. And with all of his knowledge, and with all of his right to judge, he says that instead, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What he has chosen for us, for you, is mercy. Judge not because, uh, not because, they couldn't or shouldn't be judged. Judge not because you also stand to be judged, but what, has God, what God has given you instead is grace, forgiveness, blessing beyond measure. And so I'll end where I began with Fred, because I believe that what he says is true, and I know for sure that I can't say it better. He says, the New Testament proclaims that at some unforeseeable time in the future, God will ring down the final curtain on history. And there will come a day when all our days and all the judgments upon us and all our judgments upon each other will themselves be judged. The judge will be Christ. In other words, please hear this. In other words, the one who judges us most finally will be the one who loves us most fully. Romantic love is blind to everything except what is lovable and lovely, but Christ's love sees us with terrible clarity and sees us whole. Christ's love so wishes our joy that it is ruthless against everything in us that diminishes our joy. The worst sentence love can pass is that we behold the suffering that love has endured for our sake. And that is also our acquittal. The justice and mercy of the judge are ultimately one. They're not opposites. They're not fighting with each other. They're the same. 
And so now, may we let God be the blesser, and may we have the curiosity to join him in it. May we drop the gavel, and may God fill our open hands with his mercy, and may we see as God sees, and forgive as he forgives, and, has com and have compassion as he has compassion. For prayer, for a prayer to close us, I will offer this. Y'all can hop up. This is from St. Isaac of Nineveh, as translated by Scott Cairns in a poem called The Measure of His Mercy. As a grip of sand is flung into the sea, so do the sins of all flesh enter the mind of God. Just as the strength of a flowing spring is not hindered by a handful of earth, so the compassion of the Creator is not daunted by the wickedness of his creatures. Know this, whoever bears a grudge when he prays is like a man who sows grain in the sea and expects to reap a harvest. Regardless, just as the fire's flames cannot be prevented from reaching upwards, so the prayers of the compassionate will not be kept from their ascent. Amen.